Mark. Matt, do forget? I was trying. You guys disappeared from my screen. I'm trying to find you. Hold on. Where did you go? <laughs> Welcome one again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am, by why it is two years later, I'm still telling you about all the things that I am confused by. I should probably stop doing that, but uh, it's too late. Anyway, I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am joined, as always, by Dr. Jennifer Ryder. Hello. And we have a special guest this time with us from the University of Buffalo, Dr. Haley Bannock. Welcome, Haley. Hi, thank you for having me. We are super excited to have you here because we have a topic that is an area that you actually do research in. And it's always good every once in a while for us to have somebody who knows what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't want to do it too often, but uh, every once in a while, not a bad idea. And as a reminder to everyone, if you could go on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, that's BU's hub for lifelong learning where you'll find all kinds of really interesting programs and learning tools. We've got our mini MPH program that is free that you can do or share with your friends and relatives who want to know what a master's of public health is all about. And also as a reminder, if you could go ahead and give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is you use to listen to this podcast, helps people find the podcast and hopefully you'll tell people how much you love us. So now on to the show. So today... In our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study on a new medication for adolescent obesity. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about the flood of armchair epidemiologists that seem to have arisen in the time of COVID-19. And then in our final segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, we'll get into some things that made us laugh out loud or just amazed us. So let's get into segment one. So we're going to talk about a study that looked at the impact of a new drug to treat adolescent obesity. So this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was entitled A Randomized Controlled Trial, and here's where I fall down, but Randomized Trial of Liraglutide? Is anyone? Liraglutide. No, really? I only know that because I looked up the pronunciation. Okay. I, I listened to some person online say it about 10 times. Liraglutide. Ran randomized controlled trial of liraglutide for adolescents with obesity by first author Aaron Kelly of the Department of Pediatrics and the Center for Pediatric Obesity Medicine at the University of Minnesota Medical School. So here are some headlines on this one. So from Eureka Alert, liraglutide. <laughs> Liraglutide can help adolescents with obesity manage their weight. From MedPage Today, Liraglutide, a viable add-on for kids with obesity. Medwire says Liraglutide for weight loss successful in adolescent obesity. And Medscape says Liraglutide trims BMI by 5% in fewer than half of obese teens by 10% in one quarter. I don't know what that means. <laughs> can I just read that to you again? Yes, please. please. Liraglutide trims BMI by 5% in fewer than half of obese teens by 10% in one quarter. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There are a lot of percentages and fractions in There's that. There's way too much that. for a headline. I mean, I actually don't, I, I suspect it's not wrong. It's just very hard to digest. So anyway, Jen, can you, can you uh, tell us what this study was all about and what they did? My pleasure. Obesity now affects... 108 million children and adolescents globally. And we know that obesity before puberty is actually a strong risk factor for adult obesity. The first line treatment for obesity in kids is lifestyle therapy, but that has shown limited effectiveness. There are two FDA-approved drugs to treat pediatric obesity. One of them, Orlistat, is restricted to use in patients who are 12 and older, and the other, Phentermine, is restricted to patients who are at least 16 years of age. In Europe, there are actually no approved pharmacotherapies for pediatric obesity, and bariatric surgery tends to be reserved for the most severe cases. 
So lyroglutide is a <laughs> glucagon-like peptide one analog, and it reduces, it uh, leads to weight loss through reductions in appetite and energy intake. Three milligrams is approved by the FDA and the European Medicines Association, along with lifestyle therapy for weight management in overweight and obese adults who have at least one related coexisting conditions. There was a trial that looked at adults with overweight or obesity and also either hypertension or dyslipidemia, and three milligrams of lyroglutide resulted in weight loss as well as improvements in cardiometabolic biomarkers and improvements in quality of life. So this particular trial aimed to evaluate the efficacy and safety of lyroglutide along with lifestyle therapy in obese adolescents. The study is a double-blind, placebo-controlled phase three trial that was conducted from September of 2016 through August 2019 at 322 sites in five different countries. There was a 12-week run-in period and then a 56-week treatment period, and then they continued to follow patients for another 26 weeks without the lyroglutide lyroglutide treatment. That 56-week treatment period included a four to eight week dose escalation period to get up to that three milligrams. Participants were adolescents aged 12 to 18 who were eligible if they met the following criteria. So they needed to have a BMI of at least 30, according to the adult standard for obesity. They also needed to be at the 95th percentile or higher for their particular age and sex. They needed to have a stable weight, meaning less than five kilograms change during the prior 90 days, and a poor response to lifestyle therapy alone. The kids with type 2 diabetes were eligible, but patients with type 1 diabetes were excluded. All of the participants in the trial received lifestyle therapy from baseline through week 82, and that consisted of counseling about healthy nutrition as well as physical activity. The randomization was stratified by pubertal status, so that's the Tanner stage 2 or 3 versus 4 or 5, as well as glycemic status. The primary endpoint was a change in the BMI standard deviation score between baseline and week 56. So that's just a measure of the number of standard deviations from the population mean BMI matched for age and sex. There were a number of secondary endpoints. So in terms of efficacy, they also looked at the change in that standard BMI standard deviation score from week 56 to 82. They looked at the percentage of participants who had a reduction in BMI of at least 5% or at least 10%. I think that maybe is where that headline came from, Matt. Mm -hmm. They looked at change from baseline to week 56 BMI, as well as body weight, waist circumference, waist to hip ratio, et cetera. There were also safety endpoints that were measured from screening to week 82. So those included adverse events, hypoglycemic episodes, changes from baseline in bone age and tanner stage, as well as hormone levels and and heart rate. So mental health was assessed with validated questionnaires at the screening visit and then from at every visit from randomization to the end of the trial. In a sample of participants, they also conducted a pharmacokinetic analysis to evaluate adherence. The statistical analysis was done using intention to treat, but imputing randomized participants who were lost to follow up. Missing data was handled with multiple imputation using the assumption that patients would have responded had they been treated with placebo. And then for the weight-related endpoints, they used mixed models for repeated measurements to estimate the treatment effect if all participants had adhered to the assigned treatment throughout the whole duration of the trial. The continuous efficacy endpoints were analyzed with 
an analysis of covariance model, and then they use logistic regression for the categorical secondary efficacy endpoints. There were no adjustments made for multiple testing. So in the end, 299 participants were screened and 251 were randomized, 125 to liraglutide and 126 to placebo. The treatment was completed by about 81% of the participants at week 56 in the liraglutide group and 79.4% in the placebo group. Baseline characteristics were pretty similar between the two groups. There were some small differences in things like race. And the escalation to three milligrams was reached by 82% of the participants in the liraglutide group and 98% of the participants in the placebo group. So for their primary analysis, they found a difference of negative point. 2-2 in the BMI score comparing liraglutide to placebo. And this, they claim, is in the clinically meaningful range. And it's stronger than in prior studies of lifestyle interventions in pediatric patients. The results were sl slightly stronger when they used that mixed model for repeated measures. There were also changes that favored the drug for a number of the secondary endpoints, so a larger relative change in BMI. At week 56, 43% of the participants in the liraglutide group, but only 19% of the participants in the placebo group, had a 5% reduction in BMI. For a 10% reduction, those percentages were 26% and 8%. The one maybe concerning finding was that between week 56 and 82, so after the treatment was completed, there was a larger increase in the BMI standard deviation score with liraglutide than with placebo. So that was a difference of 0.15. And the pharmacokinetic analysis suggested that there was probably declining adherence to therapy throughout the, the trial period. In terms of adverse events, the one difference that they found was in GI events, which did occur more frequently in the liraglutide group, so 64.8% versus 36.5% in the placebo group. Those primarily occurred during the dose escalation period and were a frequent cause of discontinuation of, of treatment. And then there were a few psychiatric adverse events. So there was one suicide in the liraglutide group that occurred 340 days after treatment initiation, and then one participant in each group reported a suicide attempt, but those were all determined to be unlikely due to the treatment. Okay, so it seems like the take-home message from that summary is that it, this drug does appear to be beneficial. doesn't look to me like these are you know, huge effects, but but there does appear to be some benefit, which may wane a bit over time, but overall, some benefit. So Haley, this is this is obviously closer to to your field than than our fields. What's your what's your take on this study? You know, good study, bad study? Are there things that stood out to you as particularly strong or particularly problematic? So overall, I liked the study. Sometimes on Journal Club, it, it's easier if you have a really messy study. There's mm. no a ton of problems <laughs> to sort of to pick at. This seems to be, you know, a well-conducted, well-randomized trial. I think there's some questions that I have about how, their analysis in terms of the intention to treat versus sort of per protocol type of analysis. I'm I wonder about what those really mean for the real world. But in general, I mean, pediatric and adolescent obesity is an enormous public health problem that we really have very few tools to deal with right now. And so this, this study, you know, gives me some hope that maybe this is a tool that could be added to the the toolkit, you know, of clinicians that have to help kids or adolescents that are dealing with this as a problem. I thought the results for when they were on the treatment were quite strong. The problem is if you ever come off it, I don't know really what that means for a kid. Are you telling them at age 12, they're going to be on this for the rest of their lives? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that's a, that's a big thing to tell someone. And I don't even know if that's what you would tell them. So I think the messaging about what we do, what's next is a, is more complicated than the sort of straight uh, results from this trial. 
And so, Haley, you said that, well, not what you said specifically, but in terms of how I read this, when I looked at it, I was not sure that the effect sizes were particularly large. And I I say that because I don't don't really know the field well enough to say, but when I read the article, they make the statement that it is well established that a weight loss of three to 5% significantly improves some health-related outcomes in adults. So are these, are these, you know, effect sizes that you would consider to be important changes? Obviously, you know, it's different when you think about individuals versus population level, but I'm just curious what your, your take is on the size. I do think they are meaningful, especially because it is really hard to get people, adolescents in particular, to lose weight in a meaningful way. 5% weight loss, 5% change from your baseline is a substantial amount of weight. So, you know, it's not crazy how large it is, but it is a, a, a meaningful change in weight loss that research has shown that this amount of weight, even though it's not enormous, does have an impact on health outcomes. So I was impressed with that. And and although it is a little bit confusing when you say it on this podcast, I did find the figures in terms of who lost more than 5%, who lost more than 10%. Mm. When I sat and, and read it and thought about it, that is actually quite a compelling justification that, you know, it, those who uh, were in the treatment group, 43% of them lost more than 5% of their weight. Compared to those who are in the placebo group, only 18% of them lost more than 5%. And when you talk about 10%, those who are being treated, 26% of them lost more than 10% of their weight. And in the placebo group, only 8% lost more than 10% of their weight. So it really, mm. it's it's a mouthful of, of fractions and percentages to sort of think about. But this really does seem to show that this liraglutide, uh, liraglutide has an effect on weight loss. So, so one of the things that struck me about this is they have a figure which shows the percent change in BMI over time. And they've plotted that for both the intervention and the placebo arms. And what you see is the intervention arm starts to drop pretty quickly over the first 9, 10, 12 months, over the, you know, the first year, the time period when they're on drug. Uh, sorry, that, sorry, I said that wrong because that's in weeks, not in, in so, but not months. But so the first 16 weeks, then over the rest of the year, it stays pretty, pretty flat, no change. So it's almost as if, you know, you get a benefit over the first 16 weeks and then very limited benefit. And so that does make me wonder whether these would in fact be sustained benefits and, and the the, the return to, I wouldn't say not to uh, complete change, but to a 5%, 7% reduction by the end of the follow-up period, there's a, there's a, there's a quite a bit of return in percent change in BMI once you go off the drug. But, but the other thing that's, that strikes me as really interesting is the placebo group, which has almost no change except sort of at the end when there appears to be weight increase. And the reason I find that striking is if you put people into a, a, say, a nutrition trial or any kind of dietary trial, my expectation is generally that people are going to be motivated to change their behavior by virtue of being in a trial, even if they're in the placebo arm. And so I usually expect to see some kind of weight loss in the placebo arm that you really don't see here, which I found, you know, just kind of surprising. I think it's it's because uh, these are adolescents and you have mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. remember that these are, in essence, kids. I used yep. to work at an intervention program for severely obese teenagers. And, you know, they just even though they might have excess body weight, they are just regular teenagers in every way. And yep. they don't want to eat the broccoli. They don't want to go exercise. They want to hang out with their friends and they want to, you know, listen to music and do whatever teenagers do. And so I think when you when you think about, you know, okay, I'm joining a trial, I'm going to be motivated to change my lifestyle, that might be more of an adult way of thinking than sure. a teenage way of thinking. And I think that this is what you're seeing in the figures uh, really Related to the placebo group. The, the treatment group is actually experiencing benefit weight loss 
because of the drug, not because of the, uh, you know, intervention or lifestyle intervention that they are both getting. And I, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I, I appreciate that. Jen, what about you? What's your what are your thoughts on this study? No, I mean, I, I really like this study. And I think that the figure that you mentioned, Matt, it's interesting how consistent all of the outcomes are. You know, they had a number of different efficacy outcomes. And I think they they really all provide the same message in terms of the drug having a pretty rapid effect on excess body weight and then kind of flattening off and then once the treatment is completed, there there is this phase of, of a return to mm-hmm. almost normal. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like Haley said, I had some questions about the some of the methods used for the per-protocol analysis. It could be sort of fun to... And really, they're, they're just questions, not really criticisms. But it was, I think, the way that they presented those in, in a balanced way was also, was also well done. I would agree. I mean, I think they they did a nice job. Um, There were a few things, though, that I, I don't know, left some questions in my mind. So the first one being that um, this was a study of 251 adolescents. So it's not a really large sample size. And whenever I, you know, I see moderate sized trials, I do worry a little bit about, you know, whether or not that effect sizes, those effect sizes would hold up in, in a larger trial over time. If I understood correctly, there was about a 20% loss to follow-up in yeah. this study. Now, I don't think that's a problem in terms of just the question of whether or not the drug works, because my sense is they used what I'm going to call a conservative approach, although I never know what conservative means, but in the sense that they considered those who were lost to follow-up to have essentially followed along with the same trajectory that the placebo group did. So they didn't assume any any benefit, and I think they assumed probably that's fairly conservative, but I do always wonder, you know, in 20% or lost follow-up, what that means both for the for the drug, you know, would people continue to take the drug long-term? And then the other thing is, you know, the, the, the trial wasn't very large. They claim, they claim, I won't, that sounds like an accusation, but they say that the groups were, were well-balanced, you know, they were reasonably well-balanced for sure, but there were certainly some things that stood out to me as not being totally balanced. Obviously, in a randomized trial, you are accounting for that in terms of your measures of random error. But I don't know, I still get a little uncomfortable when I see things that, you know, just don't look perfectly balanced because you had a small, not small-ish, it's not a small trial, but a small-ish trial. So, you know, uh, any, I mean, are there any any other things like that that, that stuck out for you all? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're concerned about loss to follow up, you know, especially for how we would bring these results into the real world is definitely something to consider because they documented that it was the treatment that the GI adverse events that led to discontinuation of of the treatment in in the majority of of the the cases. So, you know, in in thinking whether this would ultimately be effective in in the real world, I think that 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 is a concern. Yeah, my my concerns were mostly about loss to follow up and the adverse events. I I thought that this was a well written article and I really did like it, but I, I didn't like this statement. And it said most adverse events were mild to moderate in severity and were deemed by the individual site investigator as unlikely to be related to the trial treatment. So that's under the safety heading. But then they go on to describe uh, how all of these GI events were more common in the treatment group, how the discontinuation was likely to be related to the the GI symptoms. So I thought that that was uh, maybe a mischaracterization of the safety endpoints that they had been looking at. And I don't think these are our endpoints to be overlooked because, yeah. again, these are kids we're talking about. You know, you can't go to school and you can't hang out with friends if you're nauseous and vomiting or have diarrhea all the time. It's just, um, you know, we need to think about the real world implications of, you know, these, oh, so there's nausea. That's not just, a, you know, a, a side point for these kids. So I, I, I do worry about the overall usefulness of this drug in terms of the side effects, especially if you're asking kids to be on it for many, many years in order to maintain that weight loss. So that was, that was a a problem for me. They're sort of dismissing these, oh, you know, it just is. Yep. 
Yep. I agree. That's the kind of stuck out, stuck out to me as well. So there's, there's one last thing that I want to follow up and it's really two things together, but it, it follows from something that you said, Haley, which is you said, in general, you found this to be well-written. So I want to read you a statement from the study and I want to get your reaction to it. So the statement, it's, it's probably about three sentences. The trial was designed and overseen by representatives of the trial sponsor Novo Nordisk with input from selected site investigators. The site investigators gathered the data and sponsors performed the data analysis. And the sponsor performed the data analysis. All the authors had access to the data, directed and supervised the data analysis, interpreted the data, and vouched for the accuracy and completeness of the data and the fidelity to the trial protocol. The first author wrote the first draft of the manuscript with assistance from an independent medical writer funded by the sponsor. The manuscript was subsequently revised and approved by all authors who agreed to submit the manuscript for publication. So it's a twofold question. One, how do you feel about medical writers? And the bigger question, how do you feel about industry-sponsored trials with these conditions on it? Haley, you want to take that one? Sure, I'll, I'll start off. I do not object to medical writers. I would prefer a well-written, understandable manuscript that may have been assisted by a medical writer than a manuscript that I can't understand the analysis, I can't really understand what's been done, and, you know, it's hard to follow. So not, not every manuscript that doesn't have a medical writer would end up that way, but if somebody thinks their manuscript might end up that way, I would say go with a medical writer. So I don't, in oh. principle, object to them. Okay, so, so Sangon, Jen, what's your take on medical writers? No, I, I agree with Haley. I don't think it's necessarily a negative or a cause for concern. Yeah, I, I totally agree with this. I mean, we, we, we bring in different, you know, I mean, you wouldn't object to somebody who could produce some really interesting high resolution figures for yeah. you, right? You wouldn't object to somebody, you know, who, who bringing in someone to do the statistics, right? We, we do specialize in writing, you know, if you can make the writing better, I think that actually helps communicate the science. I think that's a good thing. So I don't have the problem with that. I think ghostwriting is a bit of a, right. is, is something yeah, that we worry about, but that's not a, that's not the issue here. They're so upfront about it. You know, it's, it's on the first page of their manuscript. Yep. Yeah. Um, that no, I, I really no appreciated that. that. Go ahead, Jen. No, I was just going to say, I mean, my funding of research in my understanding of research in industry is that people's roles are much more clearly defined. So I think as academic, we tend to, you know, write the grant and then, you know, we collect the data and then we do the analysis and then we report the results, you know, and, and you know, it's the this like soup to nuts role. Yep. But I think yep. that's less common. So it's not surprising that you would have someone dedicated just to manuscript writing. I uh, totally agree. So let's go back to the other issue, and I will, I will, I will go first on this one, just to to not put you all in the position of, I and I've said this before on the podcast. I immediately, when I see that the work was industry funded, based on my experiences with this podcast. So I wouldn't have done this before we started doing this podcast, but since doing this podcast, when I see industry funded, I increase my skepticism, and it's not. I'm making no no claims against these authors in any way, shape, or form. It's the pattern. It's that we have seen a pattern over time of industry-sponsored work compared to non-industry-sponsored work showing more favorable results towards the, the product. And so I don't know whether I'm alone in this or whether you all share that skepticism. Haley, what's, how, does, how do you react when you see that it was industry-funded? And by the way, I know I should be clear, Industry is going to fund research, and I understand that and accept that. So I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that you know you shouldn't take industry funding or anything like that. I'm just saying I increase my skepticism. Yeah, no. So my when I see it, I definitely take note of it. I do often think, hmm, that's kind of interesting. You know, I wonder, I wonder. You know, it so it does increase my skepticism. I don't think necessarily there's anything wrong with it. And I think there's lots of very well done industry sponsored, especially trials, where often it's hard to get money or resources to conduct a trial. So, um, you know, that industry sponsorship is really vital sometimes. I think the real shame with industry sponsor is what you don't see. And that's part of the problem. I don't necessarily think that... 
the research that comes out is bad, but it's the null research. It's the research that didn't confirm what they want. That you know, it's sort of the missing data problem of studies, and that I think is a bigger concern for me with industry-sponsored research rather than when I see it on the byline of an article I'm reading. Yeah. And, you know, so in the last episode that we did, we talked about the garden of forking paths, the idea that if you've got a ton of analytic decisions that you get to make, you can essentially come away with any result that you want. Now, that is that's not that's not nearly the same extent with a randomized trial that is pre-registered. But, you know, there are decisions that one can make that would you know certainly would help. I don't want to say bias, but 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 point things in favor of of a particular result that you wanted. And so, you know, that's why I would say it increases my skepticism. Jen, what's your reaction when you see it? Yeah, I mean, I definitely take note. And I think, you know, the the reason that potential conflicts of interest are published is because they are potential conflicts of interest. And I think, you know, it's our it's our job to take note of that when we're reviewing the paper. I think it, it didn't concern me at all in this particular case. And, you know, and I think too, I think, again, it, it, for me, it relates a bit to just the consistency of the findings. It's not like they just got lucky and chose the right primary endpoint. I think, you know, the conclusions would have would have really been the same regardless of, of which one had been selected. And that that makes me feel more comfortable. Okay, so overall, it seems like in general, we have a, a positive view of this study. I may have a little bit more skepticism than you both, but I'm generally <laughs> positive about it as well. And so I think we, 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 have, we have come to some kind of conclusion on this one. So let's move on to our second segment. And boy, I don't really know how to get us into this one other than to say, <laughs> I just thought it was something that we should be talking about because it really concerns me. So what we're talking about in the second segment is in the time of COVID-19, there have been a flood of our, what we, what what are being called armchair epidemiologists. So I'm not specifically here getting at the guy on Facebook who now, I think I read, you know, I can't, so the joke was, all my friends who used to apparently used to be constitutional law scholars have suddenly become scholars in uh, epidemiology. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about your your friend on Facebook who's just you know read some articles and is is now claiming to be the world's expert in epidemiology. I'm talking about folks who have training in other disciplines, and now that we are in the era of COVID nineteen and need information, feel that their skills are better suited towards the problem of understanding, predicting, and managing COVID-19 than are the epidemiologists who have been training to do this their entire careers. It has probably been most visible in terms of the mathematical modelers. So the folks who have been building models to try and predict what's going to happen with COVID-19, the thing that everybody, I'm sure everybody, does everyone ask you both, like, when is this going to be over? Yes. And I do. I assume you tell them like I do that. I'll, I'll tell you tomorrow after we go to our secret epidemiologist <laughs> meeting where we all decide this. Yeah, it seems you know it seems like it's coming from fields where building models is is part of the tradition. So you know economics, but also computer science, physics, you know various different disciplines. And you know I think the the skills that these folks bring to bear are actually, you know, generally useful skills, but they lack the training in understanding infectious disease transmission dynamics. And these things seem to have real consequences in that there are lots of people who take their their models at, you know, as as gospel and potentially are even basing policy off them. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I'll start with you, Jen, but just sort of what's been your experience with this over the past month and a half, two months? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in the field, I have a few experts who I trust and mm -hmm. have, you know, have just been following a lot of their forecasting and interpretations of, of what's been going on. But it has, I, I mean, I'm very aware how difficult it would be to know who to to trust and rely on if you are 
outside of the field because frankly it's been it's been you know difficult for me and I'm a cancer epidemiologist I mean this has become my personal my like the thing I say more than anything else lately is I don't know I'm a cancer epidemiologist <laughs> yeah, like I yeah, say yeah. it over and over and over but you know I do I feel this camaraderie now with people in the behavioral sciences because I feel like they've had to deal with this forever yes. you know yes totally true but it is, but the one, uh, trying to find something positive in all this, I mean, people do know what epidemiology is now. And I think that that, I don't know, it feels like we should seize that that moment somehow. But you're right. I mean, the the people who have kind of come out of the woodwork to declare expertise has been been pretty alarming. Yeah. And I, you know, I worry that it potentially does damage to our reputation because, you know, the the general public cannot tell the difference between an epidemiologist and, a, you know, a, an economist of or course. a physicist yeah. who's, who's doing epidemiologic modeling. And I worry that, you know, we run the risk of looking bad when those models fail. We have our own problem with our own models. So, we don't want to have to take responsibility for others who are just sort of jumping in. I do agree with you that people now seem to know what an epidemiologist is, but I think there's a, you know, as you say, there's there's the difference between a cancer epidemiologist and an infectious disease epidemiologist. But even within infectious disease epidemiology, there's a huge difference between somebody like me who sort of does, you know, the cancer epidemiologist equivalent of infectious diseases in that I use traditional study designs to sort of identify the effects of, you know, various interventions and causes of disease, as opposed to the modelers who are using a totally different skill set that I wouldn't even, you know, I wouldn't ever try to get involved in because I don't, you know, it requires training. And the I think the average person doesn't understand that. Right. Haley, what's, what's your bid experience been with this like? And do you share my my worry? Yes, I, I share your worry completely. I feel so completely out of my depth in mm. the infectious disease realm. It's just, obviously I'm an epidemiologist, but all of the modeling, it, like all, even the terminology, I, I, I feel so lost a lot of the time. And I have a PhD in epidemiology. I have to understand this more than, you know, many people in the general public. And I'm still lost. So I I do worry about the information that people are getting. Also related to your point earlier about skepticism, I am so skeptical of all of the modeling and all of the, you know, we know there's going to be 137,000 deaths um, I'm pretty sure you don't know that. And, you know, I can't even imagine what your confidence in is around that estimate. And I just, it's turned me into this like curmudgeonly skeptic of the literature, which is a weird place for me to be. So can yeah. I ask a question? So what do you think is driving this? I mean, is it, is it, what's the motivation? Is it, you know, a, a moment in the spotlight? Is it, you know, is it potential for funding? Is it like, why does everyone, I mean, what's driving people to be armchair epidemiologists? I, th Haley? I think, I mean, I think it's that everyone wants to help solve this problem we're in. Everyone wants to figure out how we're going to get out of this, you know? And, and so if you have some knowledge to contribute, isn't that a better thing to contribute some of your own knowledge to the melting pot of information that we have right now? Yeah, in my case, I say no. I say it's no <laughs> also. You know, and I can help when a study comes out and, you know... I think that there's horrible selection bias in this COVID-19 study yeah. that, you know, came out recently. Um, you know, so I can comment on that. Like, hey, guys, maybe you shouldn't listen to this as if it's the gospel because they selected their participants in this crazy, insane way. So I feel like I can contribute to that conversation. But in terms of like the transmission dynamics, I probably know as much as my grandmother. Like, I, I really <laughs> don't know anything about that topic. 
Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I, I've thought about this a lot. Why do, you know, why are people jumping in? I do think there's a mix of reasons. I do think one of them is really just an opportunity to be in the spotlight. But, but, you know, I don't, I don't want to ascribe that to, to most people. I do think that, you know, there are a lot of people who just think that this is, you know, that epidemiology is easy. Yeah. Right. I mean, I feel like I encountered that a lot. A lot of people think that epidemiology is just applied common sense and, you know, it's really pretty straightforward and you just do it and, no problem. And I know how to build a model. So I'll just do that. And so I, you know, I just, I think there are so many different reasons, but, but to go back for a second, I mean, so Haley, you mentioned confidence intervals. So if you look at many of these models, they come with intervals. (laughs) There is one model, which I won't name names here, but that there was a study that they're, they're, Confidence intervals, I don't know that they call them confidence intervals, but their 95% intervals were wrong 70% of the time. In other words, they couldn't include the next day's prediction 70% of the time. But that said, you know, the the intervals, you know, I would say probably more or less on these models are generally right. It's the point estimates that are wrong, but po- intervals don't help planners. Planners no. don't want to know, they want, they want a number. And if you give them an interval, the only numbers they're really going to focus on are either the best case scenario or the worst case scenario, depending on, you know, what their particular slant on it is. So we have obviously a government that wants to see the best case scenario. So they focus on that. But, you know, in terms of planning, you know, many states went with the worst case scenario because, you know, you didn't want to be wrong. And that has consequences, too. I think there is a disconnect between what we want to do as scientists and express the uncertainty in an honest way and what policymakers need. And I think that this epidemic has exposed the the lack of interface between science and policy, that there aren't enough people who are good at translating between the two and saying to the scientists, this is what we really need, and saying to the policymakers, this is what it means. I don't know. No, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think that's a really interesting point. All right. Well, apparently epidemiology is easy. So anyone who wants to get in, <laughs> if you've got your model, just uh, just publish it and uh, write a write a blog post about it. And yeah, never mind you'll... publishing. Just put it on Twitter. You'll just get famous Twitter. in no time. <laughs> put it on Twitter. All right. Well, let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. We just two this time. So um, Jen, I'm going to let you go second because I'm going to go first because mine relates to what we were just talking about and. I am fully aware that I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be using this as my amazing and amusing because A, it is neither amazing nor really amusing. And (laughs) B, I should not actually be giving this any airtime. But I'm going to do it anyway because in my own sick sense of humor, I found it amusing. So you guys are probably aware of this. Do you you know about the the blog post that was written by the uh, economist Tyler Cowen? Yes. Jen, did you, did I you come across this? No. Uh-uh. So this will be news to me. So he's he's an economist who wrote a blog. Uh, he's got a fairly visible blog. He is the Holbert L. Harris Professor of Economics at George Mason. And he's also director of the Something Center, Mercatus Center. And his, his blog post was entitled, What Do Economists Think of Epidemiologists? And he wrote this long, detailed blog post about, you know, I, I won't even go into the details of the, the blog itself, but, you know, it certainly was questioning many things about what's going on in epidemiology right now. But then he ends with the following, and I'm just going to, I'm going to read it in full because it is, I'm just, I feel like it needs to be there for the record. So he says, Now to close, I have a few rude questions that nobody else seems willing to ask, and I genuinely do not know the answer to these. A. As a class of scientists, how much are epidemiologists paid? Is good or bad news better for their salaries? How smart are they? What are their average GRE scores? Are they hired into thick, liquid, academic, or institutional markets? And how meritocratic are those markets? What is their overall track record on predictions, whether before or during this crisis? On average, what is the political orientation of epidemiologists? And compared to other academics, which social welfare functions do they use when they make non-trivial recommendations? 
F, we know from economics that if you are a French economist, being a Frenchman predicts your political views better than does being an economist. Is there a comparable phenomenon in epidemiology? G, how well do they understand how to model uncertainty and forecasts relative to, say, what a top econometrician would know? H, are there zombie epidemiologists in the manner that Paul Krugman charges there are zombie economists? If so, what do you have to do to earn that designation? And are these zombies sometimes right or right on some issues? How meta-rational are those who allege zombieism? And finally, how many of them have studied Philip Tetlock's work on forecasting? Just to be clear, as MR, that's the blog, readers know, I have not been criticizing the mainstream epidemiologic recommendations of lockdowns, but still those seem to be questions worth asking. And to me, the set of questions that are asked there say so little about epidemiologists and so much about Tyler Cowen that it is absurd that anyone would ever ask questions like, how smart are they? What are their average GRE scores? And what is their motivation for these forecasts? I, I was blown away by this and I thought I would just put it out there. I also want to say, for the record, I have a lot of really good friends who are economists and the mainstream of the economics folks that I follow on Twitter are really good people doing fantastic work around COVID-19 and are letting the epidemiologists do the epi work and they're focusing on the economics work. So I don't want to in any way paint this as this is what economists are like. This is just one really weird economist. So I just had to put that into the record and uh, get your reaction. Wow. I don't know. My reaction is, yeah, it's unfortunate professional bullying. You know, that's my, uh, that's my initial reaction. I don't know quite else what to say. <laughs> Haley, did you have a reaction? Because you had heard it before, right? You'd heard about this. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 mean-spirited. Most of it is completely irrelevant. I'm Canadian. I never took the GREs, and I have done <laughs> just fine in life. Um, it is so... Uh, and most schools are getting rid of the GREs. I mean, it's just... There's, there's just so much irrelevant nonsense in those questions. If there's real questions, and I, you know, there might be real questions buried in there, okay, ask real questions. Don't attack epidemiologists as an entire group, which we have already discussed, you know, in obesity or cancer or infectious disease. Those are completely different areas of expertise. So yeah, I, I really just strongly disagree with it. Okay. So uh, Nick, I was not aware that Haley had not taken the GRE. I thought it was your job to screen people's GREs before they were allowed on the program. So I'm, I'm going to hold that one against you. But uh, in the future, I need you to, I need you to be on top of that. Okay. All right, Jen, what do you got for us? Okay, mine is way more uplifting. I'm glad, I'm glad that I'm going second. Yes. So I have talked about articles from this online magazine that I, that I love, Nautilus, several times on, on the pod. But this recent one caught my eye because in all the articles that I've reviewed in Nautilus, epidemiology has never been at the forefront. And in this one, it is. And I wonder if it is a coincidence of just, you know, epidemiologists now being respected by most people as the superstars that we are. So this, the article is called Friendship is a Lifesaver. And it actually starts out by reviewing some of the initial epidemiologic studies of social relationships on health and longevity that began really in the 1970s and 1980s. And that was really the first time that it was established that at least among middle-aged participants, having strong social relationships led to improvements in, in health and those, those folks lived longer. And then subsequent studies looked at the effect of different types of relationships at different ages on longevity. And it's interesting, they found that in midlife, marriage was kind of the most important predictor of longevity. But for people older than 60, close ties with friends and relatives were actually more important than, than having a spouse. And that just seems like a very timely thing to remember right now when older people are isolated and have the potential to feel lonely and are also at a higher risk of, of coronavirus. So I think we should all call our moms or or 
or grandmas. But but some of these other studies also found that people who value friendship, the, just the act of valuing friendship had a positive impact on well-being, but that was particularly so for people who were older. And in the article, they cite an epidemiologist from Harvard, Lisa Berkman, who really says the way we should look at this is like we would look at other health behaviors, like like quitting smoking. Like, if you spend most of your life without strong friendships and connections, most of the the damage is done. And that doesn't mean that in older life you you shouldn't seek out those connections, but you're much, much better off if you work on that through throughout your life. Just like how, you know, if you smoke your for your whole life, yes, you know, quitting at 70, there are probably some benefits, but it would have been better to quit earlier. Mm-hmm. And that friendship also has this long-term cumulative effect on on your health. And I just think that's a good thing to keep in mind right now, because in a way, I think this is a good time in many ways to kind of work on our relationships and connections, even though it's clearly in a slightly different way. So so what you're saying is when it comes to the connections that we have with others and we want to study that and the impacts on health, we need to think about dose duration and induction period just like we do with any other yes. exposure. Yes, yes, absolutely. Why not? Of course. Okay. My, I would say my, my dose has been way down lately. And I need to up my dose. I know. Unless Zoom, unless Zoom counts, and then I'm way up. I mean, it's I'm not fu- sure Zoom counts. It it, uh. it does feel nice, uh, and I've connected with people on Zoom that you know I I haven't seen in a long time. Friends that you know I haven't talked to regularly. It's been nice to connect with people like that, but I do have Zoom exhaustion, and I don't feel that same connection as a real interaction. But it's better than nothing. So is, is Zoom a mediator or a moderator? <laughs> <laughs> you need to see the look of exhaustion on Haley's face right now to truly understand how unnecessary that question was. All right. Well, we have come to the end of our show except for one thing, which is, and I didn't ask you ahead of time if I could say something, but I'm going to say it anyway, and then we can delete it out if you don't want me to say it. But this is going to be Jen's last episode of the podcast. Do you want to say why? Yes, I am leaving academic research to go into the private sector. I'm staying in in oncology, but will no longer be affiliated with BU. So we are we are really going to miss you. And it's been a, a huge pleasure doing the podcast with you. So I am personally going to miss you probably more than more than others. But I wish you well. And, uh, and I, I hope it goes well. I really appreciate that. And this has been really one of the the highlights of, of my academic career. So thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a ton of fun. It's been a ton of fun. Also, a huge thank you to Haley, our guest, for coming on. We really, it was great to have you. Thank you for having me. It was super fun. So that's the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox. Or you could tweet Jen at, at Jennifer R. Ryder or Haley, and I don't remember your Twitter. Do you know it offhand? At Haley Bannock. At Haley Bannock. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast. And Nick Guler, who is our audio Obi-Wan Kenobi for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>